We're going to start with Romans chapter 4, and we'll read verses, uh, I'm sorry, 1 to, one to 8. Um, we're going to read through, through verse 8. Um, I know it says 6 on there, but we will read through verse 8. So Romans chapter 4, and then the book of Jude off of the printed out translation. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if... Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The book of Jude, starting at verse 1. Jude, Jesus Christ's servant, but James's brother, to the called ones who have been loved by God the Father and are certainly kept for Jesus Christ. Let mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although making every effort to write to you concerning our common salvation, I have necessity to write to you so exhorting you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Because certain men have weaseled in, those who long ago had been marked out beforehand for this condemnation, ungodly ones who are altering our God's grace into sensuality and are denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, despite how you once fully knew it, that Jesus, after saving a people out from the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. So too those angels who did not keep themselves in their first condition, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept until the great day in eternal chains under darkness. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in similar manner committed sexual immorality and went after another kind of flesh, present an example by suffering the penalty of everlasting fire. Nevertheless, in like manner also, these false teachers by being dreamers, on the one hand, defile the flesh, but also rebel against authority, but further blaspheme the glorious angels. Now, Michael, 
The archangel, while deliberating with the devil, disputed about Moses' body, yet did not dare to execute a verdict of blasphemy, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these false teachers, on the one hand, slander as much as they do not understand, and on the other, as much as they think naturally, like unreasoning animals, they are destroyed by these things. Woe to them, because they walked in Cain's way and committed themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of pay and perished in Korah's rebellion. These false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feast by feasting with you without reverence. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds carried away by the winds, autumnal trees that are twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea that are foaming their own shame, wandering stars for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been kept forever. Further, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, also prophesied about these false teachers, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, with the result of executing judgment against everyone, and with the result of convicting every soul concerning all their ungodly works, which they committed in such an ungodly way, and concerning all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These false teachers are murmurers, discontents, one going after their own desires, and their mouth speaks boast. One's admiring faces to gain advantage. Despite all this, beloved, you must remember the words foretold by our Lord Jesus Christ's apostles, since they have said to you, in the last time there will be mockers, pursuers of ungodliness according to their own desires. These are the ones causing divisions, natural people not having the Spirit. Despite all this, you, beloved, by building yourselves upon your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that results in everlasting life. Further, on the one hand, have mercy on those who cause divisions, but on the other hand, save them by snatching them from the fire and again have mercy on them with fear despite hating even the garment that has been soiled by the flesh. Now, to the one who has the power to protect you from stumbling and to set you blameless in the presence of his glory with gladness to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and for all times. Amen. So in the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. You may be seated. And as we turn to consider God's word tonight, let us pray for God's help. O Lord, our God, we marvel at how your word is inexhaustible in its riches, in the majesty of its teaching, in the wonders that you present to us there, that even the complicated, perhaps difficult, certainly challenging passages to understand and wrap our minds around, well, we are glad that it shows that we can never be bored 
with what our God has to say to us. We will never be left knowing that there's nothing left of your scripture to captivate our imagination. We are glad that we belong to the God of inexhaustible glory. And we pray that you might captivate our hearts with that a little more tonight, specifically as your majesty is displayed in Jesus Christ as the one way of salvation for all your people in all times and places. And we pray that we would be left amazed at the majesty of Christ tonight. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I know that uh, food is on the minds already of most of us here. Uh, We're probably still thinking about it from just a few moments ago, and I didn't really consider that as I was preparing, but I'm going to risk it anyway and open thinking about food again. Uh, When I was in college, at least the first two summers, I would go on a trip uh, with with an evangelistic ministry uh, from, from the college, and we would go down for a couple of months away on these kind of training retreats, but we had to get jobs. And I worked in a burrito restaurant. Uh, and it was kind of the setup where you'd, you know, you'd order your burrito, you'd, you'd pick the, the fillings as you go. Uh, if you've been to Chipotle, it's kind of like, it's, well, it is like that, but it's not that. And the difference was this place had nachos, right, which was, were my favorite uh, big pile of nacho chips with lots of toppings on top. And problematically, I never had enough chips for all the toppings. I'd run out of chips to scoop the stuff. And thankfully, extra chips were free. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes I would go and and get more nacho chips for, for scooping meat and cheese. But a new batch had been fried in the meantime. Right between ordering and needing more, there was a new batch of chips. And these two batches of chips were not always the same. Maybe the first had been in the fryer too long or something like that. ended up overly brown and, and tough, kind of brittle. And the new batch was just right, golden, crispy, tasty. Regardless how they, how they differed, though, these batches didn't look or taste exactly alike, but they still effectively scooped the same exact toppings, delivering the same substance by different means. Now last week, as we looked at Jude, we're, we're camping, just to remind ourselves, We're camping in verses 5 to 7 for a series of of doctrinal reflections before we move on in in the text. And last week we saw how Jude, in in verse 5 to 7, revealed a sort of plot twist for the whole biblical storyline, explicitly identifying Jesus as the true God of Israel. 
Jesus was the one who saved people out of Egypt under the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus, God the Son, was active in the Old Testament period, performing acts that belong properly to God alone. And so in in that respect, the first Christians, the New Testament authors in particular, reread the Old Testament scriptures now knowing that the end is fulfilled in Christ the Son. Just like the the second time you, you watch a mystery, all the clues are obvious now that you know the ending, so the apostles studied the Old Testament with new clarity about all the elements that seemed so mysterious before Christ had arrived on the scene. And we see that all along, God's Son was in fact involved in God's plan of redemption. Jesus was the God of Israel. Now, in this second of a few doctrinal reflections, we're focusing really tightly on verse 5, where Jude writes, Now, I want to remind you, despite how you once fully knew it, that Jesus after saving a people out from the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And our particular item for reflection tonight, we're going to come back to this from another angle next week, but for tonight, we're thinking about how Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. We will think about how the whole Bible is about God's one plan of salvation and how he saves all his people in the same way, no matter when they lived in redemptive history. Although the nacho chips may have looked very different in various periods of biblical history, God's people have always eaten the same toppings, namely Christ and his benefits. So Reformed theology calls this doctrine the covenant of grace, which is that Christ is the only way of salvation and fulfills God's one plan of salvation. And so our main point is from Jude that the covenant of grace means that Jesus has always and always will Save all God's people by grace alone through faith alone. The covenant of grace means that Jesus has always and always will save God's people by grace alone through faith alone. Tonight, we have four questions. And the first one, as we work through this material together, is what is the covenant of of grace. I expected a bit more of a gasp on that, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> but oh well. Uh, so our first question tonight is what is the covenant of grace? Now, simply stated, right? The covenant of grace is just God's one way of saving his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be really specific, Christ is the Savior of all God's people, all believers, no matter in which era since the fall they lived. 
So even those believers who lived before the son was born of a virgin in human nature, before he died on a cross, and before he rose from the grave, all of those believers were saved by Christ. In other words, when Jesus said in John 14, 6, that no one comes to the Father except through me, we should hear him in full seriousness that absolutely no one is right before God apart from Jesus Christ. Jude said that Jesus saved people from Egypt. Now, Westminster Confession 7.3 explains how after Adam fell into sin, God made, quote, the covenant of grace wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are, are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so the, the covenant of grace, as, we, as we're just trying to explain what it is, is that God promises to rescue sinners apart from their works because of Christ and because of his work, and we receive that throughout all history. All believers have received that by taking hold of Christ by faith. Now, I think a, a, a wider question is kind of about this issue of a covenant, right? You know, it sounds like a big theological word, covenant. Now, a covenant, though, is simply a formal relationship. It's, it's that easy. It's a formal relationship. It sounds big, but we actually make covenants all the time when we sign contracts with our employers about our responsibilities and rewards with them. But also, perhaps more pointedly, the best example is when we make vows when we get married. And if marriage is the, the best example of a covenant, really we can see how a covenant cannot be dryly contractual. No, it's a, it's a cemented relationship. Which makes it a beautiful thing that God covenants with his people. That he's committed to us in a specific way. And that doesn't change. And all of God's saving actions are grounded in his covenant. Jude appealed to the Exodus event as an example of Jesus' work for God's people. In Moses' account of God explaining how he would rescue his people from Egypt in in Exodus 6, verses 2 to 4. Moses records God saying, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. As God announced his his coming salvation, he appealed to a covenant that he'd already made. Same thing happens in Exodus 2. God then works through covenants to save his people. It's the way he binds himself to his community on earth. That brings us to our second question. So we've thought about 
what the covenant of grace is. It's just God's one plan. And now, now we want to think about the question, how is salvation in Christ always the same? How is it always the same? Because we, we've emphasized that Jude's reference to Christ saving people in the Old Testament signals what Reformed people call the covenant of grace. Just that God's way of saving people, Old and New Testaments, has always been through Jesus Christ. Now, the thing is, Jude makes that point really tersely. It's very dense. And, and you might think, okay, has he, has he sort of forced a lot of stuff in there? And so, what we want to do is confirm it, confirm this point from other scripture. And this is why we read Romans 4, and we just want to unpack Romans 4 a little bit. Because in this passage, Paul argued that justification must be by faith. Justification is God's declaration that we're righteous in his sight. We are reconciled to him. We're received in right standing. It's the confirmation that we are on good terms with him. And Paul was emphasizing that Israelites and Gentiles had to be justified by faith because, one, sinners cannot earn God's blessings by works. They can't do it. And second, before Israel had ever had the written law, before that happened, Abraham was justified by faith. I think sometimes we overlook some of Scripture's most provocative claims because we either get familiar with them or, or we kind of, perhaps more often, just assume that's the way that Scripture talks. I don't really know why it did that, but it's the Bible and it just does things that I don't always understand. But I think actually we should slow down and realize when the Scripture says something provocative and, and sometimes mind-blowing, It means to do that, right? And so, have you ever asked yourself, when you've read Romans 4, about how how can Paul rationally appeal to Abraham and David as the examples of how you, who live after Christ's coming, are justified? These Old Testament believers are the example of the way you are saved. It's an interesting claim, isn't it? The, the only way that Paul's logic works, assuming Scripture's inspired the way that we do here, I hope you do, the, the way that Scripture's coherent and that it, it uses previous Scriptures logically and in context, not just citing things for the sake of it, The only way that Paul's logic works is if God justified those Old Testament believers truly in exactly the same way that you are justified. That's the only way that it it actually tracks. Faith is then the means of receiving salvation from Christ before and after he came in the flesh. The, the difference, now here's, 
Here's where we can start to understand this a little bit better. The difference between Old and New Testament faith is therefore not quality, but perspective. Our faith looks back to Christ who has come and to what he has done. Old Testament faith simply looked forward to Christ who would come and what he would do. Uh, Life in London was a lot about museums, right? They were everywhere. And and visitors who came, we often tried to take them to museums. Um, One, because they were free. (laughs) And so it was an easy thing to do to get out of the rain. Now, imagine, if you will, that you'd come to see me there, and we ended up at a museum. We're wandering around, and we come across a really nice statue. I don't know what it is. You, you decide which one's your favorite. and uh, We're looking at it. Right, so here we are, and as we admire it, you end up on the front side of the statue, and, and I end up looking at it from the back. And here's the thing, right? We, we are looking, we, we are doing the same thing, but from different angles. We, we are both looking at the same object from the front and back perspective. And that, that is the difference between Old and New Testament faith. And that is the difference between how every believer who ever lived or ever will live has been saved by Christ. Faith is the soul's hand by which we grasp the Savior and it always has been, even when it looked forward to the Christ who would come in contrast to us, who get to look back to the Christ who has come. And the thing is, we are in similar circumstances. Jesus Christ is not here on earth with us now. We have to look elsewhere to him by faith, just as they did. We have the blessing of knowing his name. Third question. Third question. Why are, there, why are there differences in the, the outward form of God's people? Why, why did Old Testament, the Old Testament community look differently in its worship, in its practices, than we do? So why are there these differences in the outward forms? Because undeniably, right? God's Old Testament people lived out their faith in a way that looks much different than how we do in the New Testament era. If salvation is the same in both Testaments, then how, how do we reckon with, how do we explain how God commanded his Old Testament people to conduct their worship in much more complicated and ceremonial ways than he has instructed us to do. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce a distinction here. Uh, and it sounds like a couple of big words, but I'm going to follow up with an illustration. So hang with me. Don't panic. We will get through this. Um, so we want to think about the, the continuity. We want to explain the continuity of the way of salvation in contrast to the different 
outward ex- external appearances of God's people by using the distinction between the covenant's substance and its administration. And let's jump right to our illustration. <laughs> okay, think about if you and I were to go on a trip to an ice cream shop to think about food yet again. So how can we illustrate this? One important decision that you have to make every time you go to an ice cream shop is whether you, you want it in a cup or in a cone, right? Now, whichever way that you get your ice cream, well, it's still ice cream, right? On the other hand, it is given to you in a very different way. You may or may not need extra tools if you want to eat it. For example, you, you need a spoon if you get it in a cup. And so this is a very different manner of receiving and digesting the same thing. Now in this situation, the substance is the ice cream. But cups and cones are different administrations, delivery systems. Right? Whatever way that you receive your ice cream, it is ice cream. And it's the thing that you actually want, or it should be. The ice cream is the purpose. So it is the substance, the thing itself. And on the other hand, the cup and cone are just differing ways to administer, to give, to hold out the same substance. A cup is one way to deliver the substance, but it looks so different and works so different from a cone. Still giving you the same thing, though. Although, I mean, I I realize every analogy has its shortcomings, but the point is the covenant of grace works a lot like this. Christ, Christ, and we should get that clear. Christ and his benefits are the substance of both Old and New Testament administrations, all of them. And all of the administrations deliver Christ and his benefits to God's people, even when those delivery systems look very different. Now, sometimes I feel the need to prove to you that I'm not making things up. Um, So Westminster Confession 8.6 puts it this way. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Whatever packaging, whatever means of grace God had appointed in any covenant, his people received Christ and his benefits by faith. And what may surprise you, though, is that this is not even a a new or even exclusively reformed way of talking. I think think this is really cool. In the second century, 
So we're talking about years that begin with 100 and something. A guy named Irenaeus who was, uh, so the apostle John discipled Polycarp who discipled Irenaeus. Three from the cross. Irenaeus wrote about the Old and New Testaments. All things, therefore, have one and the same substance. That is, from one and the same God. In fact, the head of the house, we talked about Hebrews 3 last week, right? The head of the house is the Lord Christ, who rules the entire house of the Father, referring to the whole biblical storyline. And so, there is one salvation and one God. Believer, don't, don't take it for granted that you believe things that Christians have believed for literally 2,000 years. God is good to preserve his people in what we believe. It is an amazing act when we confess the truth together. And when we confess the truth together using words that Christians have believed for thousands of years. God is rich to sustain his church. God's plan of redemption is unified across the whole scope of history to save his people in Jesus Christ. Final question. Why does this matter? Why, why does this matter? We, we've been pulling at the implications of one aspect of Jude 5, that Jesus saved God's Old Testament people. And although we've still not opened up Jude's argument in context, the covenant of grace is one of the the necessary assumptions that we need in our interpretive toolkit to understand what Jude was saying within his broader point as an address to to Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered. Now this doctrine of the covenant of grace has two points of relevance for us as we study Jude to help us know Christ and help us live for him. First, it reminds us yet again, doesn't it, that God never changes. There is no difference between God in the Old and New Testaments. There's not a harsher God of the Old Testament and a gentler God of the New who's gracious now because of Christ Jesus saved saved the Old Testament people. And so God didn't have to invent a new way of saving his people. It was always the way he saved his people. God has always been full of grace in Christ towards those who belong to him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second, even though there are significant differences in the way that God's people look outwardly in in our worship and practices, our continuity with God's Old Testament people teaches us actually that that God still cares about holiness. And this gets us back to Jude's point, right? He's he's arguing against people who, who think, I can live any way I want. They're denying that Christ was master and Lord. And we see here that the God of grace is the same. 
But the God who calls his people to gospel-powered faithfulness is also the same. And that is Jude's own emphasis. The Christ of grace and truth is the Savior of all God's people. And so New Testament salvation does not mean that that we can turn God's grace into an excuse for, for sinfulness, sexual immorality, or license of any sort. The covenant of grace has always been full of matchless grace coming to us in Jesus Christ. But God has also always summoned his people to live for him in gratitude for grace. And this points us really to the, to the encapsulating payoff of why this matters. We see the matchless, boundless majesty of Christ. We have to see here how precious Christ is because he truly is the only source of life. He is the ground of our being reconciled with God. He is the reason for reconciled life with the Lord. He is also the root feeding our renewed life before God. He gives us life with God and helps us live life before God. Christ fills us with all good things, restoring our status in God's sight and our strength to live for him. Christ does not give truncated blessings to his people. He does not leave us to wallow in the misery of our sinful ways after forgiveness of them. He takes away the penalty and the power of sin because he is a good and mighty savior. And that, as we, as we sort of pull this to a close, we, we have to ask that question, believer, given that all this is true, why would you ever doubt Christ's power to save you? Why would you ever doubt Christ's power to save you? That he's able to do so. Because, here's why. Here's why we, we have no reason to doubt. Christ's strength to forgive whatever you have done and renew you no matter who you were is markedly clear in how he is able to overcome even the human limitations of history to distribute those blessings to his people. He was able to provide forgiveness and renewal to all his people across the ages, even before he came in the flesh. The virtue, efficacy, and benefits of Christ's work as our mediator are so powerful that even the the boundaries of time cannot restrain them. He was able to, for, to give all of his benefits to his people before he was born in the flesh. And all the more should we then trust him that he successfully provided grace to us here and now as he distributes it from heaven. He is standing before God's throne to intercede for us and give us grace in time of need. Let us flee to and know That he meets us here, in our time, in our place, through his wonderful means of grace, where we receive Christ, as all of God's people always have. Let's pray. Father God, we are astounded at some of the things your word teaches. 
And we know that they, they are beyond us to ever comprehend fully. But we are glad that we do not serve a boring God whom we could master. But you are the God powerful enough to master all of your people across the ages, giving them the benefits of your redemption apart from when you wrought its basis in history. You are the mighty God, the eternal one, for whom no moment ever passes, but all things are before you forever, and all things for your people are given to us in grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for that. We are thankful to know how he forgives us. How he has earned our citizenship in heaven. And we are thankful that we can pray in his name that we know. So we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. People of God stand to receive your benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now, this day, and forevermore, and all of God's people say, Amen. Good to be with you today.